Ed, my welcome to you all today, this uh, wintry morning. I want to invite you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles or uh, on your electronic devices to the Gospel of John chapter 4. As you're turning there, one of the things that um, I marvel at is um, about the local church, is uh, it's the local church um, by which God sees fit to reveal Himself and His manifest, discernible, active presence in the world today. This, this is where He shows up. He speaks to us through His Word, but through the people whom He has saved, He, he brings about to the world a display of, of what He's like. And one of the ways uh, that, that God chooses to reveal Himself, one of the things about God that He chooses to reveal is that He, he is a very complex entity, being, capable of multiple layers and intensity levels of emotion simultaneously. God is filled with joy. At the same time, God is a grieving God, brokenhearted over sin, and aches over the fallenness of the world. God is intense and passionate and zealous on the one hand, and yet very, very tender and near at the same time. And uh, it, it, this past week, it, it probably should be registered, it, that, um, that we see a display of such glory in God on Monday with the birth of Evangeline Ostrom. What a gift to uh, Cameron and Emily, and we rejoice with them. And on the very same day, Caleb and Grace Dernberger lost uh, a baby at about the nine and a half week mark, and, and we grieve that. And, um, but it is a picture um, for the world to see of um, how God reveals Himself in the, His capacity of, of, of uh, feeling and displaying multiple emotions simultaneously. That's what we see manifest in the life of a local church. And it's a beautiful thing. And um, it's a reason for us to worship. And uh, that's what we want to give our attention to focusing on this morning in John chapter 4. As someone who came of age and uh, came to faith in Christ during the 70s, I know, I know that's shocking to you, I don't look that old at all, um, but I, I, I've had a front row seat of a, of a revolution that has taken place over the course of several decades now, and what began with the daring, daring, shocking uh, introduction of guitars into the gatherings of the local church has become nothing short of a worship tsunami. Um, worship has become a thing. I mean, it's like the thing. Um, it is a movement. It is a phenomenon. And in some quarters, it is an industry. Some aspects of this 
tsunami, this revolution, um, have been profoundly helpful to us. Resources have been developed that just help us to think uh, about worship more biblically, deeply, clearly, comprehensively, uh, sophisticatedly, accurately than we ever have before. Outpouring of new songs. Uh, It's just astonishing the things that come out uh, constantly. There's so many good things that we can't even begin to, to do them all, introduce them all. Um, there, there is a new generation of musicians being raised up to use their gifts in local churches. Young people uh, fill large arenas to worship God with songs that just unabashedly proclaim a passion for Jesus. We, we, would, have, we would have never dreamed of this decades ago. But not all has been good. Um, Heated arguments, sometimes referred to as the worship wars over styles and what's appropriate and inappropriate instrumentation and preference over some musical genre over others have divided, have destroyed congregations. as the, uh, the Babylon Bee very accurately notes, there, uh, what we experience today is uh, we're able to stand on the shoulders of, of hundreds and perhaps thousands of people who gave their lives in the worship wars. Here's one grizzled veteran with many scars to show for it. Um, performance uh, has often been valued over participation, Technology is elevated over truth. Many songs have been written by musicians that just simply don't know their Bibles very well, resulting in songs that that lack gospel integrity, theological clarity and accuracy. And perhaps worst of all, if I can use that word, worst of all, worship has been reduced almost universally to what happens when we sing. And so it seemed good to Ryan and and me that in light of all that, and in light of the fact that in John chapter 4, where we have landed last week, we have here the most profound, succinct teaching on worship in the entire New Testament, perhaps all of Scripture. And in light of that, we felt that perhaps it would serve us well if we just dropped anchor here in this text, five verses, with the hope that the Spirit of Jesus might shape us and inform our worship to be more fully the kind of worship the Father is seeking. And, and so we're going to linger here for a few weeks and trust that uh, the Lord has something to do and accomplish among us, something to say to us. And uh, so I draw your attention now to John chapter 4, and we're going to drop in again to verses 20 through 24. Follow along, and as you recall, the context here is um, Jesus' encounter with a woman, and uh, this woman said to him, 
our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This is God's Word. Pray with me. We confess, O Lord, our desire and our dependence on You to communicate Yourself to us. Thank You that You have not been silent. Thank You that You have not left us without some clear, distinct, powerful instruction about Yourself and what pleases You and what You desire and what You're seeking. And uh, so we're, we're, we're desirous of hearing You and knowing You, and seeing You, and that it would be more than just with our heads. It would be with our hearts and our souls. And so we ask You, Lord, for the glory of Your name, for the praise of Your name. Open our eyes to see You. Open our ears to hear You. Open our hearts to know you and experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So how does Jesus know that? How does he know that there will be True worshipers. What's the basis for such solid, rock-solid certainty? And, and Jesus answers, for or because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, the, the reason that there will be true worship and the reason that there is true worship is because that's what the Father is seeking. Now, for a long time, I believed that that meant that God the Father was seeking to find true worshipers. Father was scanning the globe, looking here and there throughout the world to find true worshipers. In the same way, perhaps, that some of you came here this morning looking for coffee and donuts. There were coffee and donuts last week. Some of you are hoping to
to find them again here this week. You wished there would be coffee and donuts, but you were not sure there would be coffee and donuts. But nonetheless, you were seeking to find coffee and donuts. This cannot be what Jesus is saying, especially about coffee and donuts. Uh, Seeking, as some of you now realize as it relates to coffee and donuts, does not guarantee finding. So that can't be what Jesus is saying. It, It doesn't hold together with the grammar of the text. In the case of true worshipers, Jesus is certain. He is emphatic when he says that the hour is coming and the hour has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for or because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so the adjustment to my thinking came not so many years ago when I learned that the verb translated to seek may also be translated to make. That is, God the Father is not merely seeking to find true worshipers, like maybe there will be, maybe there won't. Rather, God the Father is seeking to make, or even more specifically, to create true worshipers. Matthew Henry shares this perspective in his Commentary says, for, for God to be seeking such worshipers implies His making them such. That is, making them into worshipers. So this is very important. This is a crucial part here of this text. Jesus is saying that the Father is not just looking, not just hoping that He might find true worshipers. Rather, Jesus is saying that the Father is Going throughout the world, he's moving in and among every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group, and he is making, he is creating true worshipers. And that is why Jesus can be so emphatically certain that there will be true worship. And that means also that this text makes an immediate claim upon our lives. Because you see, worship, worship then is, it's not just one fascinating byproduct of all the things that God is doing. Worship is not just one interesting and enjoyable category of all the many interesting and enjoyable things that God the Father is up to. Rather, being worshipped. This is the key. Being worshipped is at the very center of the Father's heart. Worship is exactly what God the Father is intending to have. And He desires it so much that He is going to make it happen. And when the sovereign God of the universe decides to make something, it is going to happen. God is not humble when it comes to worship. It's not like we start to worship God and He goes, oh, no, 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 please, oh, don't do that. It's, rather, he, God says, yes, do that. Worship me. That's right. That's what the right thing to do is. The fact is, it's not just right. It is the most right thing to do. And so that raises 
a question. It's the most important question probably here, and it's the question that I want to spend the rest of our time answering this morning. And that is, why is it right for God the Father to desire worship? Why is it right for God to be seeking worshipers? What makes it right for God to desire to be worshipped? It's not right for us. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> We're kind of put off by people who are always looking for compliments, you know, trying to, trying to get something out of us. The, the, the one who looks in the mirror and says, who is the fairest one of all, expecting the answer to be me, that, 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 that just embodies evil to us. And of course, you know, it, it's culturally acceptable for talented performers, you know, to take their bow and you know, make a curtain call, and we, we accept it when athletes, you know, they're, you know, asking for louder praise and whatnot, but normally, generally speaking, we are repelled by those who make much of themselves. So what makes it right for God to make much of Himself and desire worship? And probably to answer that question, we need to answer the question, what makes anything right? What makes anything right? Well, what is right is to do that which is fitting with the highest value. Rightness or righteousness, then, is to, it's to, to live for what is of highest value. And therefore, the reason it is right, it's righteous for God to desire worship, seek worship, is that God and God alone is of infinite highest value. He alone is infinitely above everything and everyone else. And therefore, God alone is infinitely worthy of the highest worship, the highest praise. And since God alone is infinitely right and therefore rightly to be worshipped and praised, it would be unrighteous for God not to desire to be worshipped and praised. You hear that? It would be unrighteous for God not to pursue and seek to make worshipers of Him. The reason why God the Father is seeking to make true worshipers is that it would be a sin to do otherwise. And therefore, God to do what is right or to act for the sake of righteousness means that He is doing it, whatever it is He's doing, everything He is doing, he does for the sake of His name, for the sake of His glory, for the sake of His praise. Look at Psalm 143, verse 11. <laughs> Psalm 143, 11. For, the sake, for your name's sake, O Lord, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life, in your 
righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. In, in Hebrew poetry, parallelism serves to def, define terms. So, for that, the Lord to act for the sake of His name is for the Lord to act righteously. And so, since the most glorious attributes are in God and in God alone, and since the highest perfections are in God and God alone, and since the most stunning beauties and wonders are in God and in God alone, it is right, it is righteous for God to do things, to do all things for His honor, for His namesake, for His worship. And it's because His honor and glory and wisdom and love and power and skill and justice and kindness, they're all infinitely higher than anything or anyone else that exists. He's worthy to be praised. Now, just how much greater is God the Father than anything else or anyone else? Let's, let's consider just a few examples, right? Consider the fact that God alone, like no other, has always been. Just in terms of existence, God is all by Himself in this category. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting. In other words, from eternity past to eternity, in any direction, you are God. You can go back a million years before creation, and there was God. And you can go back a billion years before those million years, and there was God. There is not, that's not true of anyone else, anything else. Everything else has been created. God alone has always been. Consider the fact that God alone is full of joy and has no needs. Who do you know? Who, who do you know that, has, that is always completely, always perfectly happy? I, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty much a black hole of need. Um, 1 Timothy 1.11 says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And that word translated blessed means happy. It means joyful. Joyful is God's nickname. What makes God so incomparably glorious is that His joy and His his pleasure and his sense of fullness is it's never interrupted by frustrated desires or disappointments or dreams. He always does everything he pleases and whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him, that is what he does. He is never lacking in anything. Look at Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, God alone is never exasperated or lonely or bitter or lustful or anxious. It's because he never comes up short on anything. He never, he, 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 he never comes up and says, oh man, I, I need a drink. Um, all God is ever doing is giving and pouring out. He is an infinite well of fullness and there is no other being like that. Consider that God alone has infinite power. One of the things um, that I always love and look forward to um, about our summer fishing trips in northern Minnesota is that when, when you get out there where there's, you know, there's no lights, oh man, and the sky is clear, oh man, you, you, you can see like the Milky Way, that there are just countless stars. I can stand there and gawk all night. And um, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 26, God says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Scientists have, uh, astronomers have discovered uh, in the universe this wall, so-called wall of galaxies. And this wall of galaxies is, is 500 million light years long. Uh, so if, if one trip around the world is 24,000 miles and one light year, one light year is 250 million trips around the world, 500 million light years is really long. And, and one time, at one time, all there was was God and then God spoke all that into being. And that's just the beginning. <laughs> God's eternal being, His unhindered joy and fullness, His infinite power. These are just a few of His matchless glories. It would take eternity just to begin to unpack all of these. And therefore, in view of God's infinite greatness, what's right? What is righteous? What is it that would be most right for us? To live for God. To enjoy God to desire God, to pursue pleasure 
above all else in the glory of God. To worship God. And in view of God's infinite greatness, what is right? What what, what is righteous? What's most right for God? Well, for God to be righteous, God must live for that which is of highest value, highest worth. For God to be righteous, for God to be God, God must live holy and passionately unto Himself. God must seek to make true worshipers who will worship Him and praise Him and pursue life in Him because He alone is God. I was having a a conversation with a neighbor um, and uh, he, he rather abruptly asked me, so man of God, that's what he, because he, he knows I'm a pastor and he kind of rubs this in every now and then. So, so man of God, why is God so ticked off about sin? Uh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, uh, in, in light of God's infinite perfection, in light of God's infinite beauty, glory, isn't pursuing life, isn't seeking to quench one's soul thirst in anything, isn't to satisfy one's heart hunger in anything or anyone else like just the most the most appalling of human tragedies. It is an offense. It is a slight. It is a put-down. It is a marginalization of infinite proportion. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God, praising, finding pleasure, expressing pleasure in all that He is. Loved ones, the Father is seeking worship because He alone is infinitely more glorious, more valuable, more honor-worthy than anyone or anything else. Now, this raises another question, Um, and and it's it's a a logical question, practical question. If, if everything God does is, um, is for His own worship and praise, well then, d- does God ever do anything out of love for us? I mean, if God is loving then how does that fit with him pursuing his own praise and the glory of his honor and the worship of his name? Or maybe say it this way, does God ever get around to doing anything that's for our sake? And friends, the the answer to this question 
oh, I, I, I believe can open up whole new dimensions of worship for each and every one of us. Listen, if God is infinitely glorious in all of His perfections, then what is the most loving thing that God could ever do for us? What is the most loving thing God could ever offer to us? If God, who is infinitely happy and full, were to give us that which was satisfying, but not most satisfying, wouldn't that be less loving than for Him to give us that which was most satisfying, infinitely satisfying? And so what is the most fully, completely satisfying, glorious thing in all existence? A great job, great friends, getting married, honor, recognition, influence, $5,000 a week for the rest of your life. Here it is. The most loving thing God can do for us is to seek to make us into worshipers and then do all He can out of all of His infinite attributes to display that glory of His matchless splendor before us. The gift of beholding God's glory is the most excellent, precious, satisfying thing could, God could ever give to us. And how do we experience that? Worship. Wholehearted. Spirit-illumined. Christ-centered worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And so, it is right for God to seek to be worshipped. The most loving thing God can do for us is to make us into worshipers of His glory. And in desiring our worship, God is, He simultaneously he is simultaneously seeking our joy and soul satisfaction as well as His glory. The more God seeks His worship in us, the more He is seeking our joy in Him. Does that make sense? God's burning and righteous passion and the quenching of our soul thirst. These things are not in conflict with each other. They are in concert with each other. In fact, the more that God asserts Himself in putting His glory on display and revealing it, making it manifest, the more joy that we'll have. You see, see if God only opens the curtains just a little bit, you know, we'll only experience a little bit of joy. But if He throws open the curtains, 
we will have great and overflowing joy. And so that's why we pursue intentionally the active, present, manifest, discernible, real glory of God. Father in heaven, show me your glory. Open my eyes to see more and more of you. Now, that sounds like almost too good to be true, right? I mean, is, is this something that we could actually legitimately hope for? I mean, is this something that God actually wants to do? Is He inclined to, to give that experience to us? Let, let's just consider very, very briefly some biblical evidence for God's zeal and passion to pursue His own glory and praise and worship. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Why did God create us? Why did He create us? Why are we even here? Why do we even exist? Ryan Redden prayed this earlier. Isaiah 43, verse 7, 21. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. God made us for Himself so that we might not just declare it, but I mean, it's a, it's a response. It's a, it's a response to an experience of all that He is. Why did God, why did God bother to save? Why, why did He send Jesus for our salvation? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 spells it out pretty clearly. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So God freely chose us. God freely calls us. God freely adopts us. God freely purchases us through Jesus, so that He could be praised. He could be praised for all the glorious wisdom, all the glorious power of His sovereign and saving grace. Why did Jesus come to earth as a man and die on the cross? How come? Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that, here's the purpose, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus became a man and died on a cross so that we might experience the, the glories and wonder of praising the Lord. Why does God forgive us? Why does He pardon us from all of our sins? Psalm 
25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your honor, for your glory, for your reputation, pardon my guilt, for it is great. You see, the reason that God takes our sins away, forgives us, and remembers our sins no more, it's, it's for the sake of of his honor and esteem and the praise of his name. Everything God does is so that he will be praised. Why does God lead us, guide us? Why does he, you ever wonder why God moves you or stirs you or inclines you to move in some direction, providentially opening doors, closing doors in order to position you and locate you? Consider Psalm 31, 3. You are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. Fear not that God's going to lead you and guide you. He will. He's going to do it for His namesake. His reputation's on the line. His honor's on the line. He will do it. Why does God help us? You ever wonder if God's ever thinking about you and would help you stoop down and supply what you need? Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. God stoops down from heaven into our mundane day-to-day lives and supplies everything that we need in order to fulfill His purpose for our lives so that He gets the praise. He gets the praise as the giver. And that's because the giver always gets the the praise and the glory. Why is Jesus going to come back to earth someday? 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10 says, When He comes on that day to be glorified, to be glorified, in His saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This should absolutely thrill our souls. What is there in heaven or on earth that could possibly satisfy our souls, fill us with more joy, more wonder, more satisfaction than when God our Father puts His infinite, matchless, eternal glory on display? And listen, he doesn't do this reluctantly. He doesn't do it half-heartedly. That would be unrighteous. Instead, God does all he does with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength because he delights in all he is with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And that, my friends, is why God the Father is seeking to make worshipers. And that purpose will never fail. Numbers 14, 21 says, All the earth shall be filled, shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Habakkuk 2, 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, of course, if this is true, well, then then what should our response be? And, And of course, some oppose it. There are souls in this world who refuse, just flat out refuse to hallow God's name. Souls that intentionally 
would marginalize his worth and value. Some are passive about it, ambivalent about it, blasé toward it. Or we can pursue it eagerly. The more earnestly, the better. So may I just suggest in wrapping up here three humble suggestions, ways that we can lean into God's purpose to being worshipped. Something that I think is, was so essential for us to understand, Ryan reframed for us last week, is how attitudes of unbelief, these things that are manifest in unhealthy emotions like anxiety and anger and loneliness and despair and hopelessness and lust and bitterness and impatience and pride and covetousness and envy and every other unpleasant emotion. These are all symptoms of a soul that is parched and in need of living water. These are all indicators of soul thirst And what is the remedy for soul thirst? Living water. What's what's the way into living water? It's turning to Jesus. It's repenting. It's drinking of Jesus by believing in Jesus. So what if we were to to take that a step further and seeing the the manifestation of these attitudes of unbelief, these, these unpleasant emotions, and recognizing that the soul thirst that is in that as a call to worship. What if every time you felt those feelings and recognized them as soul thirst, you could turn that into a call to worship? Worship. Learning to reframe these manifestations of soul thirst as a call to worship, a call to worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus is doing right here in this text with this woman as a case study. Here's a second thing. What about passionately pursuing worshiping God because that's God's greatest passion? We join God in His passion. If the highest and most glorious and most valuable being in existence is passionate about being praised, then what could be possibly more satisfying and more soul-thirst quenching and more pleasing than to wholeheartedly join Him in His own passionate pursuit? Which leads finally to passionate pursuit of worshiping God because it's our greatest joy. This is our greatest joy. If the greatest thing is God, then our greatest joy is God. Then pursuing joy in God is the ultimate, ultimate act of worship. In the mid-17th century, there was a French mathematician by the name of Blaise Pascal. um, Computer language now named after him. When When he passed away, Um, there was a piece of paper found sewn into the pocket of his shirt. And on on this piece of paper was written 
in, in his own, by his own hand, a description of an experience that he had had. And, and maybe you've heard this, but let me read this for you. Because I think it's an example of um, this passionate pursuit of joy in God. This day of grace, 1654, about half past ten at night until about half after midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Jacob, God of Isaac, not of the philosophers and the wise. Security. Security. Feeling. Joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. Thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of all but God. He can be found only in the ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world hath not known Thee, but I have known Thee. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. That's what the Father is seeking to make of you and of me. For the sake of His name and for our fullness of joy. Let's pray.